Well, it's so good to see you, Providence. Hope you had a great week in the snow. The Lord uh, and all of his uh, goodness to us to show power and to show a great picture of the gospel that uh, that uh, though uh, sin makes our heart uh, like scarlet, what the Bible says is that God's grace makes us white as snow. And so I'm um, grateful for the snow, uh, grateful for bread and milk and, and for heat and and for everything else uh, that uh, makes these days special, it is good to see you. And if you're a guest here with us, we're really glad that you're here. As a church family, uh, we are very passionate about one very specific thing, and that's to seek to give God glory in our life by seeking to try with all of our might, with all of our heart to pray, to introduce people to Jesus Christ and then to grow them up to love and worship him. So if you're a guest here with us and if you know Christ as Savior and Lord, we're really glad you're here and we pray that this time will edify your faith and will encourage you uh, to grow in him. And if you don't know him as your Savior and Lord, maybe you're just here to uh, seek or to learn or you have a friend who uh, is there next to you and they uh, just uh, were very kind to uh, perhaps even um, uh, invite you to come. Um, our, our, our prayer, our hope is that this time would help you to see uh, what Christ has done, who he is, uh, and all that he has accomplished for you. We love the Bible here, and we're in Ephesians chapter 4, so if you want to turn there, if you have one. If you don't, there's lots of Bibles in the chairs near you, and if you don't have one at home, we would love for you to take that Bible home as a uh, gift. But uh, we're uh, in an amazing little book. It's called Ephesians and, um, and, uh, and this section here is so pertinent and practical to all of our lives. And so I want to pray for us even before we get started, okay? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us. And on a day when so many, inside and outside of the church, uh, Lord, recall and remember the sanctity of life inside and outside the womb, uh, we uh, pause as a church family uh, to thank you for life. Thank you that you created us in your image. Thank you that you gave us the breath of life. And we thank you that through Jesus that you give us life even when we die spiritually because of sin. And so I pray, uh, God, that you would help us uh, to appreciate our life and the good things that you've done in us. I pray today, Father, as this text speaks very directly to how we change. God, every one of us wants to change things in our life. There's behaviors and habits and patterns in our life that we wish would go away. We thank you, God, that your word gives us clarity in what you do and the power that you provide and how you provide it so that we really can change. And so I pray today that you would give us hope. Father, for the one who has labored and wrestled with one particular sin maybe for years and maybe even decades, I pray, God, that you would give them encouragement today through your word. So would you just knock over everything in our life that would be an obstacle to our belief in what you have said? Would you give us understanding, help us to know how to uh, or practice this, and then God give us courage to do so? Would you speak to your weakness, I pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, in February of 2007, um, a busted underground sewer line uh, began to erode the limestone underneath a really poor neighborhood. Um, and uh, you can see what took place. Uh, there was a sinkhole that, uh, uh, that sort of emerged, um, Guatemala City, and, um, and it was 100 meters deep. 
What was interesting about the sinkhole, just like every sinkhole, is, uh, is it's caused by things that have happened over a long period of time underground. And, and what's tragic is that nobody knows, of course. And so you had people walking. You had, you had uh, certain, certain people actually even building maybe a, um, a home or an apartment or an actual business on that piece of land on this earth. And they didn't know what was taking place underground until it was too late because when that ground fell, five people were standing on top of it and all five perished. It's a tragedy that speaks to another reality that Paul has on his mind. And that reality is the same thing can happen spiritually. That you and I, we have a old nature, a fallen nature. And he knows this. Paul knows this. You see, Paul is in prison, but he's really uh, passionate about what's taking place in the hearts and the lives of these Christians in churches around Ephesus. And he knows that within our heart, there's this, there's this sewage line of the old man, is what the Bible called, the old self, that old bundle of, 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 of habits and thoughts and emotions and practices from before we knew Christ. And the fact is, what he knows is that if it's not capped in our life, is that it's going to lead to a moral sinkhole that People around us, they'll look at, they will be compromised, they will be hurt in the process. But even more so, I think, on the heart of Paul is that the name of Jesus Christ, whom we represent, will be maligned. And you know this, you've seen this take place in the lives of people that you know, whether they were leaders or not, whether they were pastors or not, you've seen people, and suddenly you look at their life, and all of a sudden you hear something about a habit or a crime or maybe their marriage or something that they did. And you and I, we naturally look at the external things goes, wow, can you believe that happened? But what you need to understand is that there was a period of time to where erosion was taking place within. It always takes place this way. And that erosion, if it's not capped, if it's not protected, if it's not healed, if God doesn't work within our hearts, then what takes place is not only do we not grow, but it sets itself up for a day when we fail in a way that's going to malign Christ. And he is so passionate about that not happening, which is why for three chapters in Ephesians, he tells us what the gospel can do in our life. And then he makes a change. And in chapter four, verse one, he says, now look, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you and I have received. In other words, represent the authenticity and the dignity and the credibility and the power of the gospel that we say is available through Christ. What he's going to do next week, I say what he's going to do, um, what we're going to look at next week, okay, is he's going to set aside a little section where he's going to um, talk almost one verse at a time through little um, uh, um, or, or big um, it's a list. It's a list of practical behaviors that, that he says, you know, we need to be careful. And he starts with, be honest. And, then he, then, and it's like, you know, and it's really important that you do something with that anger problem that you have. And then he goes into a verse and he says, you know, stop stealing from people. Instead, go get a job so that you can share stuff with people. And he's going to go through forgiveness and being kind. It's just a practical list of things that Paul says these should be moral behaviors that should be seen in our life as Christians. But what's interesting is if you look at that list, 
in particular from the, from, from the service, there's really nothing all that shocking about it. You would expect to see it. In fact, every religion in the world has a list that's pretty similar to that. The YMCA and the Boy Scouts have a list of behaviors, right? Be kind and don't lie to one another and be trustworthy and, and share your things. And, and so some people, they conclude because all the religions of the world and many of the organizations in the world, even Caribou and Starbucks, they have a code of ethics, a code of conduct. This is what we care about. And so it's natural for someone on the outside to look and say, you know what? It's all the same. The goal is this. Just be good. Just be good. We're, we're, it's all, all these paths, they all saying, hey, let's just be kind to one another. Let's be good. And the problem, according to Jesus, his own words, is that none of us are good. Oh, we can be good for sure. And in fact, we all are, even unbelievers, even people who don't love Christ or know Christ. The fact is they can be kind, they can be loving, they can forgive somebody who's, who's harmed them. But what Paul knows and what God knows is that God sees a sewage pipe underneath. You see, God is the only one unsurprised when sinkholes suddenly emerge. We look at people and we go, wow, can you believe he left his wife? God says, I can. I watched it happen from the very beginning when a little bitty, just a little bit started to just drip out of that pipe, that poison, that sewage, and it began to erode over and over. And over. God sees the whole thing. He sees absolutely everything in our life. And so what he does is this, is that before telling us sort of how to behave, starting in verse 25, he shows us how God gives us power to change. He shows us in this passage, verses 17 to verse 24, what God does in our life in order to help us change. And this should be really pertinent to all of us because every single one of us have something we we say, man, I just wish that habit, that old part of who I used to be, I just wish it would go away and never come back again. So let's read what he says. Starting in verse 17, Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So providence, what does God do to bring about change in our lives? The first thing is this we see is that God exposes the darkness of our heart without him. He exposes the darkness. And this is what we find in verses 17, 18, and 19. And so you see verse 17, he says, look, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, it's really important that you sort of understand when he uses this term Gentiles because he uses it in different ways, even in Ephesians. In chapter 2, he's very specifically talking about race and ethnicity. There he says there's these people called the Jews and everyone else is called the Gentiles and God has brought us all together and formed us into one body. 
when he gets to this place in chapter 4, just like much of the New Testament, he uses the word Gentile as synonymous of someone who's far from God. Most of the Gentiles in the world at this time, they didn't know who God was. They didn't know Christ. They didn't know the gospel. They had no Bible. They didn't have the Old Testament. They were Gentile. The fact is, is many of the first readers of Ephesians, these, these believers in Ephesus, they were Gentiles also. And so he clearly makes a shift and he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then what he does is he describes the heart of somebody who is far from God. And it's fascinating what he does because he shows us the symptoms, but then he moves to the source. He starts and he says, now, this is what most of you guys think about. You look at somebody and when you see the tangible manifestations of their sin, we go, oh, And he says, but it's actually a lot deeper than that. But we should start there. And that's verse 19. He says, they're callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So when we see somebody who's greedy to practice impurity, when they're they're vile, when they're sinful, when they're immoral, we go, oh my gosh, look, look at them. Or when we'd see that in ourselves, we think, oh, that's the deepest, darkest part of this person. It's all come out. And actually what God says here is that's not the case. You see, every heart has cravings. Your heart has a craving. And many of the cravings are very, very bad for you. They're very destructive. You may have a craving for sex or for money or for for man's approval or for somebody to say, man, you are so special, you are so important. The fact is, is that every single one of us have cravings. And apart from God, it says that we give ourselves up to them. The word give ourselves up, it means to surrender. What it means is we bow the knee to them. We say, I need more of you. No matter how much I have of whatever that craving is, I need more and more and more, and I'm going to resource it. I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to talk about it because I need more of that. That's what it means to give ourselves up to a sensuality. It causes us to be greedy for impurity. I need more. I need more. It's never enough. Now, some of us would look at it and go, we'll see, well, that's the problem right there. But Paul says, no, it's actually deeper than that. And he forces us to look deeper. And we have to ask this question, why do they crave? Why do these Gentiles, these people far from God, why do they have these cravings? And he tells them, he says, well, it's because they're alienated from God. You see, you and I, we were created to find our joy in being near God. And we're not near God. God's absence in our life or, di- or his distance or our distance from him, it causes restlessness. And because we feel empty and restless, we settle for substitutes. We don't place our heart on him because we don't even know that he's there. We've separated from him. We're alienated from him. And so we settle for substitutes. We say, okay, well, that's the problem. Paul goes, no, actually, there's a reason that people are alienated from God. And he says, and it's because... Of ignorance. It's because of ignorance. Why do they settle? Well, it's because they don't know. You might say, well, wait a minute. All these people, if they just knew, I mean, just go ahead and be satisfied in God. The problem is they don't know that God is the person they're missing. They don't know that God is missing in their life. And as a result of that, they have cravings for everything else. You see, one of the things you and I have to understand is that every single thing in the world that's been created, every molecule, every cell, every person, everything, everything has literally been created for God and by God. Everything is, 
has like like every sunset every every rock every mountain every every wave it's like a flashing arrow that says look to Jesus this is for Jesus this is for this is for him everything is meant to push us to him but here's the thing when we are ignorant when we don't know that god is the thing that it, or person is missing in our life we can be confronted with all the evidence that points to his glory in the entire world and still not see him This is what he says when he says that their understanding is darkened. It's like a dark room. There's furniture everywhere. There's stuff all over the room. It all points to Jesus, but the lights are off, and so they cannot see. They don't know. This is why a scientist can know 10,000 things about this strand of DNA and never have a consideration of God, even though that all of this, all the proteins, everything about your DNA is intended to say that God is amazing. You and I, we can look at this landscape. We can see the beauty of color. and We can see the beauty of of texture and hardness and softness and complexity. And there are people in the world, because they're ignorant of God, they don't know that he's there. They don't know this points to him. They can look at this and never have a single consideration that there's a God behind all of this. You say, well, that's the problem. And he goes, actually, we need to go one step deeper. That's not actually the source of the cancer. Because he says that they are ignorant due to the hardness of their heart. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 20, he says, everyone, he says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. What's he saying here? He's saying is this, that a dark and hardened heart does not want to be exposed. It wants to be alien. It wants to stay in the dark. It, it, it refuses to have somebody go over and say, hey, you know, we could, we could flip this switch and you could see everything. When we love our sin, we don't want it to be exposed. And Providence, this is the most significant thing I can tell you about your sin. Your greatest problem is not that you do, it's that you want to. Have you ever thought about this? That if your want-to's changed, then you would never sin? It's inside. And while you and I pay such careful attention to our public behavior and other people's public behavior, God always says, let's dig deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper so that we can actually get to the source. So what do we do with this, Providence? The application is this. Is let's accept as truth what God exposes in our heart. Let's accept as truth what God exposes in our heart. See, God sees everything. He sees every crevice. He knows every desire that you have, and he also knows every motive of why you have that desire. Nothing is hidden from him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered. And laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So my question is this. Why would God shovel down into the dirt in order to get to the place to where your eyes and my eyes can see the sewage? And where your nose and my nose can smell it? I mean, think about this for a second. He's writing a church. He's writing believers who've been saved out of this. He's not saying this is where you're at unless this is where you're at. 
He's talking to people who, know, who he believes has already been forgiven of their sin. So why would he dig down deep and show the heart? I think there's two reasons. Number one is hope, and number two is healing. Hope. Why hope? Because you only say you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do or as those who don't know God if indeed there was a rescue. You only say stop doing that if it's possible. And this is what he says to us. You see, he says in verse 17, he says, I say and testify. In other words, when he says I say, he's saying I'm your teacher. When he's testifying it, what he's saying is that truth that I'm teaching you, I want to show you how it's been applied in my own life. And so Paul, at one time, was in prison, a prison of futility. He was all engaged in sin. He was greedy for impurity. He was given to sensuality. He was alienated from God. He was ignorant of Jesus Christ. He was darkened in his understanding. He was hard-hearted towards Jesus Christ. He says, I was in that prison, but here's the thing. I found the exit. So when he says, I'm testifying, what he's saying is this. For those of you who are still trapped, I know the way out. And so that should give us hope. I think the second reason that he digs down deep so that we can see and smell the sewage is because he wants pure and total healing. Healing. You see, if you find yourself at a place where you've even trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you know you're justified. You know that his righteousness has been applied to you, and yet you find yourself on any particular day given up to sensuality or greedy to practice impurity? What he's saying here is this. Don't go find a motivational poster. You've got to dig deeper. You have to keep digging deeper. Don't settle for that quick fix. You have to dig deeper. You have to ask, okay, if indeed my heart is given right now over to this impurity, I need to start asking questions. Number one, why do I have that craving? Am I alienated from God? Am I distant from God? Am I far from him right now? Am I ignorant of something that I should know? Am I enjoying the light and committed because of a hard heart to keep the light off? Meaning, do I love this sin so much right now that I don't want it to be exposed? In other words, friends, I think what he's doing is this. He starts by exposing the darkness to help us as believers know how to receive true and complete healing from the inside out so that our life never gets to the place to where there's a sinkhole that maligns the name of Jesus. This is you and this is me and he knows. And so let's accept as truth what he says about our heart. But he doesn't just expose the darkness. The second thing he does is he shines the light in our heart through Jesus. It's interesting, there's a lot of people who love to get to verse 22, 23, and 24. But Paul says there's actually a stopover that if you don't stop in verse 20 and 21 and absorb this and see this and apply this to your life, then literally the rest of the entire book of Ephesians and the Bible as a whole is absolutely irrelevant in your life. You think, gosh, that's a bold statement. Think about this. Why or how did God bring us out of the darkness? Well, he shined light. 
That's what he says when he says, that's not how you learned Christ. You heard about him. You know him. And the truth is in him. In other words, nothing else that I'm going to say today applies to you if you do not hear the voice of Jesus calling you to trust him. You have no power in yourself to apply anything in the rest of this book on an ongoing basis unless Jesus Christ literally lives within you. And the only way for that to happen is for him to speak. Sometimes he speaks through people. Sometimes he speaks through his word being read over us or explained. But here's the thing. You need to hear the voice of Jesus and you need to trust him. You need to trust him. And I want you to know that he is the most trustworthy person in the world. There is nobody that you should trust more than Jesus Christ because nobody has been more committed to you than him. It is for you that he stood up from his throne in heaven and took on the garments of a servant and came to this earth. It was for you and me that he absorbed all the temptation and yet never sinned one time while he was on this earth. It was for your sin and mine that he went to a cross and died for it, paying its penalty, absorbing all the wrath of God the Father that was directed towards us. It was for us that he did this. And when he rose from the dead, it was for you and I that he gave an invitation that if we would trust in him and believe in what he's accomplished, that we would be forgiven of all of our sin. And that we would be given his righteousness. This is what Jesus makes available to us. What I'm trying to say is this. Is that if you and I are in a prison of futility. If you and I are addicted to something in our life. Even as believers and we can't get away from it. The only voice that can help you out of that pit. Is the voice of Jesus Christ. It's as if you're in a physical prison. And you've heard that there is a route of escape. And your door is unlocked, but you don't know which way to go. And suddenly, there's a voice on the intercom saying, turn left, 20 feet, turn right. If you do not hear that voice, you will never get out of that prison. And the only voice on the intercom is Jesus Christ. And so as a church family, every time we come to this, we look and we say, you can trust him. And we urge you to do that today. We want to help you. We want to introduce you to him. You see, if Jesus is not working and laboring in your heart, you cannot get out of the pit that you are in. His is the only voice, but his is a powerful voice. This is what Jesus said when he was on the earth. John 5, 25, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do you hear his voice? Christian, do you hear his voice? You see, for those of us in Christ, you need to understand that it's the story of Jesus that we call the gospel that keeps shining light in our hearts so that we can grow. When you read in the Bible, Jesus' story, when you read the Bible, it's fascinating when people start reading the Bible to me. Every time I ask people to read the Bible, folks send me an email and say, do you know there's a lot of bad people in this book? There is. There's a whole lot. Actually, all of them but one. Every single person in there is just a total nightmare except one. They're all like us. There's, they all sin a little differently. <clears throat> but what you see here is they all give themselves up to sensuality. They all have different things of impurity. They're all alienated. They're all hard-hearted. They're all darkened in their understanding. 
But then as you keep reading, what you find is God intervenes in their life. He intersects at the point to where they need. And as you are reading the Bible and you're reading the voice of Jesus and you're reading how God intervenes in their lives, Jesus begins to speak in our hearts as he shines light in theirs. And all of a sudden we're looking, we're like, this is how God works in people's life. And suddenly, as you're reading the scriptures, you see in Jesus a beauty that is so powerful that suddenly the power of impurity in your life is broken. You see something more beautiful than your sin. You keep reading and you see Christ's invitation to us to come to him and suddenly alienation begins to lose its power. You keep reading and you see the light of Jesus Christ and suddenly darkness loses its power. You see the truth of Jesus and suddenly your ignorance loses its power and then you see a grave that's been overcome by Jesus Christ and suddenly the grave of your hard heart is overcome. What I'm trying to say is that if we will endure at the feet of Jesus' story, the chains of our futility will break. It's available to us. And so the application for the second point is let's not tire of hearing the gospel. Sometimes people come and they say, you know, Brian, you talk a whole lot about Jesus' death and resurrection. It's true, we do. When are you going to move on? Never. Do you know why? Because apart from the voice of Jesus and the story of Jesus, not only does the unbeliever have no possibility of coming to faith in Christ, but the Christian has no possibility of growing in Christ. Guys, it's not about your strength. It's not about our creativity and ingenuity. We have to have Jesus in us saying, trust me, trust me. And only when we're confronted daily with the story of Jesus and the voice of Jesus will that take place. And so let's not tire of hearing the gospel. The third and last thing is this, is that God invites us to participate in being changed. He invites us to participate in being changed. Now, this third point assumes one very important thing, and that is that you have trusted Jesus Christ, that you have heard and learned of Christ. Because if you haven't, verse 22, 23, and 24, not only will it confuse you, it'll forever frustrate you because you don't have the power to pull it off. And so, just real quick, go back. Trust Jesus, okay? Assuming you have, though, as believers in Jesus Christ... When you enroll, as it were, in God's school of grace as a Christian, one of the things that he tells you to do to help you to grow in the areas of your life is he says you've got to change your clothes. It's a fascinating thing, change your clothes. That's exactly what he means. Now, it's a metaphor. You see it here when he says put off the old self and put on the new self. It's literally take off as in a garment. He's, he's saying get undressed and then get redressed. And the crazy thing is, when you enroll in the school of grace as a Christian, he says, now here's your clothes. It says they're created. You don't make them. He makes them for you. He says they're created in true righteousness and holiness. He says, now where are these? And the craziest thing happens is that as believers, every single day you wake up, you look down, and you're in your old clothes. Then, Wait a minute. This isn't right. I need to put these off. And you put them on. All of a sudden, you go out the door, and you get in the car, and someone pulls it out in front of you. And suddenly, you look down, and you're in those old clothes again. Like, how does that happen? And so the Christian life, in terms of growing in Christ, is constantly changing your clothes. And let's talk about what that means. 
He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. So what he's talking about here is repentance. Repentance means to turn. It means to turn in the power of God's spirit, where we look at God and say, God, I know this is wrong. And so I'm asking you to give me strength to help me leave this sin. And each time you look down and see your old clothes, which is that bundle of old attitudes and old behaviors of life before Christ, your former manner of life, he says, we're supposed to repent. But then we're supposed to put something on. He says, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And what this represents is obedience. So you put off by repenting and you put on by repenting, by, by obeying. And obeying this new self, this is, the, this is the bundle of new attitudes and new behaviors that have been made available by Jesus Christ. Now, here's a really important point, and that is that we must have both. There's a lot of churches that focus a whole lot on putting off. They even put signs in the walls of the church, the things you're not supposed to do. They make sure everybody knows, this is our list. Don't do this. But the problem with that is oftentimes these same churches, when they focus on putting off, they never tell you how to do it. They never supply the power to do it. And so what this causes is legalism. Legalism is is just a bummer of a Sunday. It really is. Because what it is, is people telling you, here's the rules. You must do it in order to be in. And yet we're going to give you no power to do it. That's just, that's a hard way to live. Legalism is not the gospel. But then there's another thing. We can focus on the other, and that is that let's just not talk about sin. Let's not talk about repentance. Let's not talk about putting off. Let's just keep putting stuff on, better stuff. So there's a whole lot of places today. They're not going to talk about sin. They're just going to say, let's just be loving. Let's just be gracious. And what that provides is hypocrisy. Where people look at our life and we're like, wow, but I I see love. Clearly you're putting that on. But I also clearly see you doing things that the very book that you say is important to you says is sin. And so it creates hypocrisy. Providence, God wants us to participate in both. I want you to notice that these two actions, this putting off and putting on, they're connected by a very important bridge. Um, I only have a few minutes left. And typically, that's when eyes start to glaze, okay? And so this is the most important thing I'm going to tell you, though, in terms of growing. If you miss this, you're going to walk out and you're like, I'm supposed to just put stuff on and put stuff on. And then you're going to leave and you're going to get really frustrated because you're going to find you can't do it. So I'm going to tell you how to do it now. So you've got to listen. This is, this is like, all right, wake up time, okay? And so shake your head if you need to. Do something like that, right? Because this is really important. You notice that there's a connecting bridge between verse 22 and 24, and it's verse 23, and this is what he says. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, you notice that there's the word be, be renewed, okay? When he says, put off and put on, these are kinds of verbs that it's up to you. You're supposed to do this. It's the present tense. You're supposed to do it and keep doing it. You need to repent. You need to obey, When we come to this verb, it's actually in the passive tense. So what that means is it's happening to us. But because he instructs them to do it, be renewed. You, you, be renewed. What it means is this, is that we're supposed to position ourselves where it can take place. Sort of like if you uh, woke this morning and you needed a shower. And so what you did is most likely, right, you turn the water on. 
And then you either stood in the corner of the shower waiting for it to warm up, or you stood outside the shower until you saw steam or until you felt it. Okay, that's warm. And then, and then you get under it. Here's the deal. You can turn on the shower. It can be hot water. And the water's flowing out. But unless you get under it, unless you position yourself under its benefit, you get to reap none of it. It's of no value to you. Oh, it's pouring out, and there it is, and wow, there's another nickel of water, and there's another quarter, and it's just, it's just, right? But you're not getting clean. Nothing's happening to you. And this is what he's saying. When he says, be renewed, what he's saying is, position yourself in the place where renewal of the spirit of your mind can take place. Now, we need to understand one more thing, and that's this. What is the spirit of your mind? The spirit of your mind is your imagination. Your imagination. So let me show you how it works. You go to the doctor, and they test your blood, and they go, wow, your cholesterol is really high. You need to stop eating red meat. You go, okay. You leave the doctor, and you go out, and all of a sudden... It was a long day at the dark, so you go out and you go, let's, let's go to a restaurant. And all of a sudden, they hand you a menu. I'm like, wow, look at that steak. And now you're tempted. Okay? So what happens? This is what happens. The outcome will depend largely on the spirit of your mind, your imagination. If you vividly at that moment in time imagine eating a steak, there's a good chance you will. But if, on the other hand, you vividly imagine having a heart attack, you probably won't. In other words, whatever captures our imagination typically governs our behavior. It's the same with sin. God comes to us and he says, don't cheat on your wife. Don't lie to your parents. Don't look at pornography. And all of a sudden, we get tempted. It's there in front of us. What are we going to do with it? The outcome will depend on the imagination of your mind. If you vividly imagine sinning, you probably will. But if you vividly imagine God's justice being violated and the destruction of your Marriage or your children or your home or the public shame brought to you or to Christ, there's a good chance that you will not. Whatever captures our imagination will govern our behavior. And this is why Paul cares so much about the mind, so much about our thinking, so much about not being ignorant. This is why he says, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So Providence, let's ask God to renew our imagination to renew our imagination as we repent and obey. So let me put it all together now. You ready? If you want to change, you go to the Lord. And then you pray and you say, God, I keep doing this. And your word tells me that's sin. I don't want to do it anymore. I repent. I need your help. I need your strength. I need your endurance, but I repent. And at that moment, you've repented. At the same time, you're saying, God, I want to obey. You tell me not to do that, but to do this. And so I want to put my effort in doing this. And I need your help even in obedience. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to position myself in a place to where my imagination and my mind can be renewed. So I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to come and have the Bible read to me. And what I'm asking you to do at that very moment, I'm asking you, as I come under the water, under the shower, and it falls on me, I'm asking you to stir my imagination, the spirit of my mind, with a brighter picture picture of your beauty, a brighter picture of love or of truth or of justice. Make it brighter than how bright sometimes I see my sin. God, would you make your truth more vivid than anything else in my life. 
And what you find is this, is that when the spirit of your mind, your imagination is, is, is working and God is giving you a clear picture, a brighter picture of true righteousness and holiness than sin, then things start to happen. The first thing that happens is your heart is less hard. A light is turned on so you're not in the darkness. You see things as truth so now you're not ignorant. You're closer to God, so now you're not alienated. When you're closer to God, your heart is more full of joy. It's full of satisfaction. As a result of that, you don't have the strong cravings in your life to go seek out everything under the sun that's impure and to give yourself to them. You see, as we are renewed with the truth, our heart will develop new attitudes and new emotions and new practices that lead to true righteousness and holiness. Providence, this is how we grow. We actively repent, we actively obey, and we actively place ourselves under a fountain of God's truth. And we look to him and say, God, give me a brighter picture, a vivid imagination of what righteousness can bring into my life and make it brighter than sin. And when that takes place, temptation is a million times easier to say, no, I don't need you. Because my heart is already full. So over the next several weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to work very slowly through this list of appropriate behaviors, verses 25 to 32. So slow that some of you are going to be like, man, Brian, that was like one verse. You got through one verse. It's true. We're going to go that slow. And what our hope is this, is in each case, I want to show you how God exposes the darkness in that area, how God brings light in that area, and then how he asks us to participate in that area. And I promise you that if we look to him in faith, that God is going to use these weeks to liberate many of us from these very sins in our life. And so I ask you in faith to lean in. God can do this in our life. Go ahead. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank you that you have shown us the darkness that's present in our life, that you've allowed us to see the light of Jesus so that we can hear his voice saying, come this way. And we really can't escape from the prison of our sin and temptation. And that we can grow, we can participate, we can actively repent, actively obey, and, and actively ask you to stir the imagination of our mind towards righteousness. God, I pray that you would help each person here to apply this to their life. Would you start with me? God, would you help all of us to become people of integrity and righteousness and holiness? And our prayer, God, is that you would work on the inside in order to safeguard the outside. So, God, that our life and our witness, we would never malign the name of Jesus. And so, God, we pray that as we sing and as we give, we pray that the name of Jesus alone will be magnified and exalted. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.